0: You're listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we seek to clarify distinctions between Mormon and credo-Christian thought. I am Brendan, and I'm here once again with Sky Sky. Sky Sky. This is, uh, this is take two for <laughs> us. We, we had some really good conversation for about three minutes. Yes. And then I looked and realized that my computer had stopped recording. Yeah, which is unfortunate because you'll probably never get that conversation again, folks. Oh, unless That's, you're vegan and vegetarian, yeah, and or vegetarian, then it's probably it is fortunate. It's fortunate if, if yeah, because we were questioning the legitimacy of plant-based meat <laughs> by Beyond Meats and Impossible Meats. Listen, listeners, if you've had if you've had Impossible Meats or Beyond Meats and you think that it was worth my extra like $3 at some point when I'm at a restaurant, would you just write in and let me know? Please. Because that's the kind of valuable feedback we're looking for here <laughs> <Yes>. is, uh, <laughs> I mean, in heaven, you know, we're all, we're all going to be vegetarians. Yeah. I so don't think we'll be eating The, meat, the lion will lay down next to the lamb, mm-hmm. you know? Indeed. And Eden, but, I don't think they ate meat. But maybe we'll be able to miraculously manifest meat. <laughs> <laughs> if we could just bend the matter in the right directions, we could make meat that is yeah. not from a dead animal.
1: As If we just mastered law, eternal yeah. law. To the exactly. Point where we could, okay.
0: I think if we do that, we could yeah. have meat still.
1: Yes. Uh, it, it, we got to call it something other than miraculous meat.
0: <laughs> so. Yeah. It's just... So, yeah. So, th- the question today is... What kind of food do you like to eat the most? And we had this great discussion about meat because the picture on the app that I use was a hamburger. Yes, because I use an app to get these questions. If anybody was mm-hmm. wondering, I, I'm not creative enough to come up with questions to ask people about their lives. So I use an app. It is what it is. It is deal with it. So what was our answers?
1: I don't uh, even remember we I think- didn't
0: eat, we didn't even get to an answer. I think. Uh, did we did we answer? I think I answered Thai, oh yeah, we had a whole conversation- <laughs> about Thai <laughs> about spicy. this is gonna be an interesting wow. episode today. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> we just had this conversation three minutes ago, uh-huh, yeah, Thai
1: yeah well i I don't know if you answered yet.
0: I haven't answered yet no, no, we were talking about Thai and whether you okay. like spicy food or not.
1: You're going out to eat with your wife,
0: yeah what what do you, man? Where yeah, do you go? Is, is, here's the question. Is cost it a uh, factor? Well, how different? Well, <laughs> we're about huh. to see how bougie I can be. Yeah. If cost is not a factor, okay, I, I'll just tell you. We went to this restaurant, and this is like the only time we've done this in our lives, but for our last anniversary, which was our 10-year anniversary, wow, we went to a restaurant up in Salt Lake City. And I can't even remember the name of it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Do we need to Google that? But the experience was, is what yeah. matters.
0: <laughs> but uh what was the name of that place? I have no idea. But uh it was one of these restaurants like what you see on, you know, these shows on Netflix, the the final table shows yeah. or whatever it's called, Chef's Table. And uh, so it's a restaurant where you go and they have a tasting menu. And so you get to try a number of different ingredients and, oh, oh, just changed my mind Uh because there was another place we went to more recently that I liked more than that place. And I know the name of this place, so it must be better. uh, Yes. Yes. So there's a place actually here in Provo that is similar. And we had some friends who gifted us a really nice gift card. And we went to this place called communal. You yes know, you know yeah have you ever been there yes or, i have yeah so so that place it i thought good. was incredible but it's yeah, yeah sim, similar deal where it's kind of a tasting menu and you choose your options and what's cool about communal is you actually share the dish you know so we we got these dishes and just tried lots of different ingredients all fresh fresh seasonal ingredients mostly local uh locally grown and all that stuff and you know, just places where you actually appreciate the chef knows mm-hmm. what they're doing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, yeah, that's I'm like, gonna say that. That sounds awesome. Yeah.
1: What what did you? That's get? not a type of food, it, though. Yeah, that's exactly. A, that's a
0: restaurant. Yeah, we got. What, uh, or
1: what was a highlight from? Oh it, man, for
0: you. Um, goodness, it was all so good. I would say. I mean, it was probably the, we got like these pork chops oh. and it was probably, it was probably the meat. It was just delicious, juicy. Yeah. Perfectly seasoned. Where are we going after put. this? That's the question. That's... Yeah. Oh, I know. <laughs> there was also these beets that were surprisingly good too. I think I remember something with beets there. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that, that was and memorable like peas. And yeah. Yeah. And then, and then I'm not bougie enough to remember the names of all the dishes. We'd yeah. need my wife here for that. Yeah. She's the one who she kn- she pays attention to such details, but the starch that we got, whatever that was, <laughs> it was really good. Uh, it, it kind of is almost like grits, but it wasn't. I don't remember what it was. I like grits, so yeah, it wasn't that. <laughs> I wish I could remember what it was because that was actually my favorite part of the meal. But I'm trying to remember. Yeah. Anyways, go to communal and figure out for yourselves. Yeah. If, if you don't live here, save up all your money for an entire year, <laughs> and then and then go to communal uh for 50 minutes and <laughs> blow it all. Yes. And walk away with the I mean that's how millennials live, right? Uh-huh. We're both millennials. We, we are. That's huh? how we live. We spend all of our money on life experiences instead of stuff.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's, I don't I'm know if that's true, at a table but full of stuff. A here. real stare. Yeah, we yeah, do we spend just... a lot of money on books.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's about the exception there. Okay uh yeah type of food pizza all right let's move on here <laughs> um well, let's just get into it but not little caesars it's got to be like the bougie wood fired you know um, oh, so good yes
1: you know <laughs> we are it's hungry. like
0: if i'm not paying at least 20 bucks for a 10 each pizza i know it's crap so <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a good rule Wow. All right. Let's get into it. Matt. So we're February 27th and March 5th. And uh, obviously, if you're not listening during these dates, or if you have no idea why I just said random dates out loud, it's because that is the week that the Come Follow Me curriculum will be used in the LDS church. And so we are using... The Come, Follow Me curriculum is a sort of springboard to think more deeply about Mormon thought and how that compares to credo-Christian thought. So we're going to be looking at February 27th to March 5th, which is going to be Matthew 8, Mark 2-4, to and Luke 7. Now before we get into that, we're going to keep with our pattern of what we've been doing, which is just to read a portion of a creed or a statement of faith that is historically, you know, from from a credo-Christian perspective. And what we're doing is we're kind of picking portions that will have to do with some of the discussion that we'll end up having today. And so I want to read the section on saving faith from the Second London Confession of Faith, the 1689, which is a historic Baptist confession of faith. And I want to read the portion here on saving faith that has three sections. The grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the word, by which also, and by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer and other means appointed of God, it is increased and strengthened. By this faith a Christian believeth to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word, For the authority of God himself, and also apprehendeth an excellency therein above all other writings and all things in the world, as it bears forth the glory of God and his attributes, the excellency of Christ and his nature and offices, and the power and fullness of the Holy Spirit in his workings and operations. And so is enabled to cast his soul upon the truth thus believed, and also... "...acteth differently upon that which each particular passage thereof, thereof containeth, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God, for this life and that which is to come. But the principal acts of saving faith have immediate relation to Christ, accepting, receiving, and resting upon Him alone, for justification, sanctification, and eternal life." by virtue of the covenant of grace. This faith, although it be different in degrees, and may be weak or strong, yet it is, in the least degree of it, different in the kind or nature of it, as is all other saving grace, from the faith and common grace of temporary believers. And therefore, though it may be many times assailed and weakened, yet it gets the victory." growing up in many to the attainment of a full assurance through Christ, who is both the author and finisher of our faith. Wow. It's good stuff. Good stuff. The Presbyterians will say the Baptists ripped it off of them, but which could be partially true. You know, that's what we do. We take things and make it better. So. <laughs>
1: Is that uh, someone's got to do it? Is that Brendan's
0: rule number two? It might as well be us. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Let's get into the LDS. Come follow me curriculum. Matthew eight, Mark two to four, Luke seven, and uh, yeah. So we've got, of course, the opening bit that uh, just again encourages the class to invite sharing, which is a very common thing in the LDS uh, faith as a whole. But then it gets into the Teach the Doctrine, and the first section in the Teach the Doctrine is covering Matthew 8, uh, Mark 2, and Luke 7. Those are just big chunks of Scripture, and again, that just becomes difficult to follow. But the passages in Matthew 8 and uh, in Mark 2 and Luke 7, many of them are dealing with miracles. And so that's going to be one of the main emphases that we have in this particular podcast is on our understanding of miracles and in particular, the miracles of Jesus. So in Matthew 8, you've got Jesus cleansing the leper. You've got the faith of the centurion who comes and asks for his servant who is paralyzed at home, suffering terribly, to be healed. Uh, Then you've got just generally Jesus healing many, and then you've got a short note on the cost of following Jesus because, of course, Jesus was always very clear that if you're following me just for the miracles, you're following me for the wrong reason. And uh, so he was always trying to turn crowds away, in a sense, by reiterating the cost of truly following him. And then you've got the account of Jesus calms a storm, uh, which we may touch on that one in particular as well. And then you've got Jesus, of course, arriving on the other side of the lake and healing the two men who have demons. So that's all in Matthew 8. That's a lot, just in one chapter. But then we go to Mark 2, and that covers Jesus healing the paralytic. Uh, which you're familiar with that uh, being the one where, you know, the friends come with the crippled man and they let him in through the roof and Jesus heals him. And there's also the really important bit on the forgiveness of sins that takes place in that passage uh, where he forgives him of sins and then all these people get offended. who Only God can forgive sins. He's like, well, which do you think is easier, me forgiving his sins or causing him to rise up and walk when he's been crippled his entire life. And Jesus said, just so that you would see that I am who I say I am, boom, get up and walk. And and he goes. Um, Then you got the calling of Levi, question about fasting, Jesus being the Lord of the Sabbath. That's all in Mark 2. And then Luke 7 is also the story of Jesus healing a centurion servant. So we've already seen that one. Jesus raising the widow's son. And then you got some messengers for, from John the Baptist and the, stor- the story of the sinful woman being forgiven. And uh, that story is highlighted in the cur- curriculum a bit too. It's a sinful woman being forgiven. So um, that's just a general overview of everything that is being covered in this particular subsection. And so the subtitle of, that, of this section is Miracles Occur According to God's Will and Our Faith in Jesus Christ. So there you see a very important note on how they understand faith. Miracles occur according to God's will and our faith in Jesus Christ. Um, So we'll get into that a little bit. Let's jump, though, to the next subsection just for the overview sake. And they are covering Mark 4, uh, 35 to 41, which is the uh, story of Jesus calming the storm. And the subtitle there, very simple, Jesus Christ has power to bring peace in the midst of life's storm. So it's just a general encouragement. You may be aware of some challenges that people are facing, and uh, how does this passage, you know, bring comfort and hope in knowing that Jesus can calm our life's storms? Um, there's also an encouragement to look at a hymn that is in their hymn book, Master, the tempest is raging. And, uh, so yeah, just, just kind of a generic, I guess, uh, reminder that Jesus can calm the storms in your life. And then the last one is Luke seven, 36 to 50. That's covered here. And this is the story of the sinful woman. And of course it's a, it's a story where Jesus is, uh, with the Pharisee Simon and, um, he's actually at Simon's house. And then, a woman of the city a sinful woman um, comes in probably you know prostitute just a well-known sin- sinner within the city comes in and brings this flask of ointment and begins to weep at Jesus feet and wipes his wipes his feet with her tears and with the ointment and kisses his feet she won't even lift her head to him and the Pharisee Simon is there is, uh, instantly moved to mock her. If this man were a prophet, he says, uh, he would he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So how, how could a prophet possibly allow a sinner to touch him? And uh, Jesus answers him saying, Simon, I, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. And then Jesus goes on and tells this parable. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50 When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from this time, but from the time that I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Now that's pretty shocking because feet were dishonorable and dirty and, and gross, and, uh, and you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Um, so then he says, therefore, uh, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. It's just a beautiful, beautiful passage. But the subtitle there is, as we are forgiven of our sins, our love for the Savior deepens. And uh, yeah, so I don't know that we'll necessarily land on that one. We could have. We just have some other things we wanted to focus on today. But um, if I could just say that uh, quickly, I think in this passage, Jesus is really making the point that the woman comes in with a love and trust of him before he even announces her forgiveness of sins. So it's not like she's going through a process of having her sins forgiven so that she can learn to love the Savior more. Yeah. It's that she's come to know His love, yeah. and she hopes in Him, and she goes to Him, and and then He pronounces your sins are are forgiven, and uh, and so, yeah, I, I would just say it's it's very backwards from the LDS understanding that you know as we progress and having our sins forgiven, we'll love the Savior more. Um, no, it's a recognition that he forgives our sins that leads us to him and causes us to trust in him alone for the forgiveness of our sins. Um, it's not, yeah, it's not these contingent clauses that we keep finding all over the place. Okay, so let's back up to just the beginning of the lesson then and focus a little bit on the topic of miracles, because we have the uh, teaching here that miracles occur according to God's will and our faith in Jesus Christ, and there's a emphasis on miracles throughout all of the curriculum. And so, Skylar, I want you to just fill in a little bit for us on what an LDS understanding of miracles is. And before you do, I would just say, this is an important conversation to have because miracles are a regular topic of conversation within the LDS faith. I have heard many people defending their faith because of some miracle that they observed or saw happen or heard about. Uh, There's even a very popular video going around right now in the internet land of Mormonism that uh, is... A guy who says that you know he left the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, hated the church, was antagonistic against it, and then during a time of great physical pain, he uh, he had some LDS missionary show up at his door, turn him away, turn him away, turn him away, turn him away. Finally, he let them in because he was getting sick of it and wanted them to just stop bothering him. And these two elder missionaries walk into the house and pray a prayer of blessing and healing over him, and apparently he's instantly healed. And so he renews his faith in the church, joins the church again, and this this story is just going haywire uh, in the LDS world. So we need to know really what LDS people believe when it comes to miracles on a deeper level and how that differs from what we believe. And then... Besides that, how we would look at these texts of Jesus doing these miracles and really interpret them differently um, and apply them a little differently. So why don't you help us out first with yeah. the first part of that? Well,
1: and I, I think it connects with faith, right? So they, I mean, even the title, again, is Thy Faith Hath hath Saved Thee. Um, and you can see this bent throughout how they cover this subject, the, the, the connection between our faith and the miracles that happen. Just as some recap, there's eternally existent law by obedience to which God became God. And that's key to see this. Um, this is why... you'll notice a little bit of a difference. Now, there's a lot of different ways Christians have described and articulated what a miracle is, and we'll get to some of that in a minute. But I think it's key to see that, in a sense, miracle is more an indication of the knowledge level of the audience than anything else in how they talk about it. So, Dallin Oaks has a talk on miracles, and that's more recent, and he says a miracle has been defined as um, a beneficial event brought about through divine power that mortals do not understand and of themselves cannot duplicate. And he talks about that. He gives um, examples of things that appear to be miracles to him, right? And But that aren't, right? Some people do understand it. And that should give a kind of an indication to someone reading that Uh, if they have a Christian background or have any sort of interest in Christian theology, that there's something different going on here. Um, Not to do too much reading here, but Orson Pratt talks about this as well in uh, the journal discourses where he talks about how miracles are not due to a suspension of law at all. Um, And, That even these miracles we see with Jesus, including the ones in this example, um, he says, quote, It was no suspension of law on the part of our Savior that caused him to gather from the elements the bread and the fishes necessary to feed the multitude, and he gives other examples. And he actually compares it to the electricity that they were experiencing and how that would be a miracle to many people, Mm -hmm. similar to what Oaks does in this talk. And, of course, we'll link to all these in the show notes. This line is really good. And so if we understood the law by which Jesus operated when he fed the multitude, it would be as simple to us as the law of electricity is today. So if we understood it, you know, it wouldn't be a miracle to us. Meaning miracle is kind of a... It's, it's something done by someone who has more knowledge to affect things around us in ways we don't understand because we don't have that knowledge. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit different. Um, Brigham Young does this as well when he talks about things being considered miracles, but that to the Lord they're not, and that might sound orthodox, but once again, they're not miracles to the Lord because of his level of knowledge, not because that, that he has acquired right? Not because he knows all things in the classical creedal Christian sense at all. In fact, Brigham Young goes on to say, there is no miracle to any being in the heavens or on the earth, only to the ignorant. To a man who understands the philosophy of all the phenomena that transpire, there is no such thing as a miracle. And, um, Later on, he says this, and this is key when it comes to even some of the topics that aren't just these miracles Jesus is doing, but things like eternal life, exaltation that we hear them talk about. Mm -hmm. We have the privilege, this is Brigham Young, we have the privilege of choosing, refusing, acting, rising up, sitting down, doing this or not doing. We are just as independent in our sphere as the gods are in theirs. And our agency is our own, and we can do as we please. We can govern and control ourselves, and when we do this by the law of truth, it produces life within us and leads to eternal life. See that? But when we take the opposite course and yield to principles that tend downward, the result is death and destruction. Now, I will make the application that you and I have done just as we please. So notice, first off, wow. Uh, but the point is why why this emphasis, even in the Holland talk, of Jesus being a teacher? Because Jesus got to where he was in a way that seems miraculous to us, but was really through the acquisition of greater and greater knowledge relative to eternally existing principles and laws. Yeah and that's what produces eternal life. I think the best one and then and, I'll, and given yes.
0: that I mean even just as we've discussed in the creation episode everything is matter ultimately. And so yeah. there's there's matter that we can see currently and there's matter that we cannot see because our eyes are not ascended to the level yeah. necessary for us to be able to see the finer particles of matter that might be called spirit. Uh-huh. And so in an LDS philosophy, a miracle is not really a supernatural event. It is something that can be performed by a person who has ascended uh, to a, a level of knowledge that enables them to move the matter around mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in a way that makes it seem to a less uh, exalted mind to be a miracle.
1: Yep. And
0: you have the potential
1: for that level of knowledge in you currently. Yeah. You just haven't activated it. Yeah. And the gods um, work toward that end of bringing about your exaltation as you gain more knowledge and therefore more power. How does the priesthood play into that? I think that's... Yeah, man, that is that's a good question. And um, but I do think priesthood power because they'll talk about priesthood keys mm-hmm. and differentiate that from the power relative to them because you know, just because you have the priesthood, they'll talk about that doesn't mean you're able to use it. So when you you see the heavenly fathers and and things like and people like this in their system, these are people that not only have the requisite authority but the power relative to it which means they have the knowledge the um i mean it's not just sincerity but you know they're the kind of people yeah. <laughs> that are able to do this as Jesus was able to do right, it right right so yeah it's it's a good question i do think uh, this priesthood concept relative to knowledge makes more sense in the temple because you have different levels as we went through last time, but um, you also have different commitments and knowledge relative to those commitments. Mm-hmm. So I think that that helps you kind of see that it's, it's there. A lot of people that go through may not think consciously about it much. Yeah. Uh, for better or worse. Yep. Um, but I think it's there And with, with most of this stuff, Johnny would. Woodsoe is, is it weird to say he's my favorite Mormon thinker? Go for it's it. Maybe, <laughs> maybe a little weird. I, I just think he's he thinks through it and articulates things so clearly. I don't. I know who yeah. I'm dealing with. with fill us in on who that is again. So, yeah, he was a um, an apostle, a member of the Quorum of the twelve, uh, a contemporary of someone like James E. Talmage, who wrote Jesus the Christ and other books, Articles of Faith, and the Great Apostasy. Actually, um, they they kind of. Um, Both had science backgrounds as well. And I think that helped them bring the restoration narrative to its form that we see today. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a very much an enlightenment narrative, but appropriated for the first vision of Joseph Smith. And I think it also helped them think through, I mean, it sounds like a scientist, right? I mean, they were scientists and I think they kind of helped, uh, I I mean, we would say project the scientific image onto Heavenly Father that's there. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. But in his book, uh, Rational Theology, which we are going to single-handedly um, popularize again, it's one of these books, I can't believe it's not read that much in Mormon studies um, because of how really systematic it, it is or trying to be. He has this in his section, uh, or I should say chapter, Man and Nature. Um, and it, uh, for those who don't have the book, Right above it, it's um, there's a section called "Man's Conquest of Nature" that kind of goes into how um, the purpose of man is to gain knowledge of the universe, and that the mysteries of the universe will shrink as we gain knowledge relative to it, and therefore we'll have more power over nature. And we may get help in that, you know. Some, you know, sometimes you know people maybe. God's will help us in that endeavor. And this is the section, Miracles. Man is of limited power. Whatever he cannot understand or duplicate may be called miraculous. And only in that sense can miracles be allowed. The miracles of the Savior were accomplished by superior knowledge. Nothing is unnatural. All that has been done, uh, man may do as he increases in power. So the conception of an intelligence guiding the destinies of men making makes it possible that in our behalf, wonderful things are often done transcending our understanding, but which are yet in full and complete harmony with the laws of nature. Remember, these are eternally existent. For ourselves, we must discover all of nature that we can. In time of need, when our own knowledge does not suffice, the master may give us help. There you go. There's grace. Mm-hmm. Thus, after man has used his full knowledge and failed, the sick may be healed, the sorrowing comforted, or wealth or poverty may come, provided we draw heavily enough upon the unseen forces about us. Help so obtained is not unnatural. A miracle is simply that which we cannot fully understand or repeat, and at which we therefore marvel. Mm -hmm. So... How does that connect to faith? Well, I think you do see this even today when you see Nelson talk about faith as a, a, a power even. Um, and, you know, we'll we'll cover this in other places. There'll be plenty of opportunities, but just so people know I'm not um, just saying this. These are direct quotes from Nelson's Christ is Risen, which was, I, if I'm not mistaken, was Easter morning, April 2021, He says things like this. Faith always increases our access to godly power. Yeah. (laughs) Truly, faith is the power. See that? Truly, faith is the power that enables the unlikely to accomplish the impossible. I'm just scrolling through here. Ordinances unlock the power of God for your life. Do you see this? It's always there a means. They're not an end. Now catch this, this is this will show how different their view of faith is. Only your unbelief will keep God from blessing you with miracles to move the mountains in your life. Mm-hmm. So notice it's means, it is, one last thing, he says, it is our faith that unlocks the power of God in our lives.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's the same message that you hear in, We've even referenced the American Gospel. It's a wonderful documentary to yes. go go and watch. But in that documentary, they are going after the the charismatic movement that would want to claim to be a branch of evangelicalism, but it's not. It's not a gospel movement at all. It's uh, it's <laughs> yeah, very 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 out there. But that's one of the big teachings that they have is just if you want to see miracles happen, that's up to you having enough faith to be able to move those mountains on your own. Yep. Yeah. And, and, and that's what, I mean, we call it yeah. like the prosperity gospel, prosperity faith healing, gospel. Movement. like they, they, they don't have good connotations within credo Christianity.
1: No. And and to be fair I, in not that you said this, but just to clarify the listeners, we're not saying all charismatics at all, but certainly many of the popular ones, Benny Hinn, Todd White, unless he changed his mind, he may have changed his mind, but Todd White, uh, Kenneth Copeland, who's come up quite a bit because he teaches very similar things here. Yep. <laughs> like, like he talks about faith as a power as well in the very yeah. uh, same places we have mentioned before. Mm-hmm. And so this this connection between faith, knowledge, and miracle is so key to see because on the surface it can sound so um, good, I yeah. guess, uh, to, to, especially a culture that's more and more new age. Yeah. I mean, th- faith unlocking power and potential yeah. yep. and within, I mean, this is, this is yeah. Deepak Chopra, Richard Rohr,
0: Oprah Winfrey, you name it as well. I know you, you got something good that you're about to tap into there. Cause the Van Til book is cracked, but, <laughs> uh, before you do, Please. I just, I just want to get feedback from listening to what you were just describing what I hear happening here is that, again, um, all of this is built toward the end of human boasting. I think being able to boast in yourself that you have this power and ability within you. And I think it just, it just clicked, you know, that even when you hear stories about like these two missionaries that go and pray over this guy who's sick that I've mentioned, in their way of thinking that would not be the glory and power of God healing that man. That would actually be them being able to tap into their own divine nature mm-hmm. and be able to emit a healing power from their cells. Yeah. Now, maybe it's through this greater law that they're under. And, you know, again, it, it gets very complex and, mm-hmm. and difficult to parse all that out, but... It's very clear that, you know, you're doing it by your power. And then if you need help, if you need help from God, uh, he'll give you a little bit of help where you're lacking to be able mm-hmm. to heal. Yeah. But they would actually think I am performing the healing deed. Like this is coming from me yeah. and from a power in me, uh, which is very, very different than our conception of miracle. Yeah. Jesus shows us how. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. Um, Which, yeah, like you see all around us in the culture. Um, I mean, even honestly, it can even come through in subtle ways when people say, you know, do the what would Jesus do? Mm -hmm. And you think, well, that's really mild. But but think about that. Assuming it has, it's all about what we should do based on what He taught us who we are or are really how we imagine Jesus being informing us spiritually what we think we are um ra- in not having any sort of idea what Jesus has done and who he is relative to us you yeah. know I mean it's it's um, proof texting at its worst and that's that's why this title I think just is glowing once you hear this whole backdrop right thy faith hath saved thee um, but there's so many examples where regardless of the faith, um, Jesus performs things, you know? Uh, And on the flip side, there's plenty of examples of miracles occurring, uh, you know, contrary to even, um, the God of the Bible, right? We see even some of the Pharaoh's magicians able to do some things. Right. So it's, it's pretty tricky. Once you get away from the text, it's it can get pretty crazy out there in terms of what people are experiencing, how they're interpreting what they're experiencing. Yeah, Man. yeah. One one uh, final point, and then we can move on. I just wanted to point out that even in a talk recently, Holland used the word omniscient of Heavenly Father, and yeah, in the same talk, he talks about um, experiences, um, even suffering being good because that's what um, made heavenly father who he is. Mm -hmm. Whoa, that's pretty different, right? So when they say words like omniscient currently, what they mean is a lot, a lot, a lot of knowledge. Mm -hmm. They don't mean, you know, that the same thing, you know, we see it as an attribute of the one God that exists. It's, um, Van Til distinguishes between synthetic knowledge and analytic knowledge, Synthetic is responding to things around it or acquiring over a process of time and things like that, but God, God's knowledge is by one simple eternal act of vision. So it's 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 not just quantitatively different. Omniscient is not a poetic way of saying Zeus is so great. I don't even know how you know he mm-hmm. exists.
0: It's it's qualitatively different knowledge yeah. that we're talking about. Yep. I this this uh, I don't mean this to sound crass, but the uh, the first thing that came to mind when we were talking about this earlier, and you were explaining to me some of some of this understanding of of uh, miracles from LDS perspective, the book Matilda by Ronald Dahl, <laughs> uh, which has been made into a movie, where you know there's this little girl, and she realizes that that she can reach an intelligence that allows her to control things in the physical world with her mind. Yeah. You know, I'm like, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's like Matilda sort of a thing Yeah, that uh, miracles occur by reaching a level of intelligence to be able to, move stuff around with your brain. Yeah. Um, that, I mean, that's basically what I hear going on. So so pretty different from how <laughs> we wrestle with yeah. miracles. So let's talk about our belief on miracles. And we'll start with it just from a bit of a philosophical perspective, and then we'll talk about the miracles of Jesus in particular. But I have a dissertation here that's written by a guy named Robert Sloan Lee, and he wrote his dissertation on miracles, subtitled a, ph- a philosophical analysis. And uh, this is a dissertation that uh, it's it's not even been published into a book, but it, it should be. It's a really good dissertation. I actually uh, only know about this because I took a class on miracles in... My master's studies, and uh, this is one of the resources that we use. But um, I'm not going to cover in a whole lot of detail what uh, Sloan is getting at, but I do want to at least talk about the, a proper definition of miracles from an evangelical Christian perspective. And he gives a pretty basic definition that I think aligns with a lot of what we see articulated more broadly. Uh, I think it's helpful. He says, an event is a miracle if and only if it supersedes and suspends the regular working of the world. So that's his definition. Now, there's a couple of assumptions that are in place then that we need to talk about that show how different our worldviews are from that of Mormonism. Mormonism is trying to define miracle within a naturalistic worldview, Mm -hmm. meaning they don't actually have anything that is – Outside of nature, Um, all of their worldview is within, it has to be within a closed system. Uh, You know, and that system may be bigger than some naturalists might explain it to be, or different than some naturalists might explain it to be. But ultimately, everything is matter. Everything, including God, is, I mean, God is flesh and bones, right? And so there's no sense that God is different than. What is in creation, he is part of it, mm-hmm. just uh, further progressed along the line than we are. And so to have a miracle in that kind of a system, it can't be a traditional credo-Christian understanding of a miracle because our worldview presupposes that God is spirit, uh, and our world presupposes that there is real spiritual activity going on that is not just some physical particles floating around that we can't see, but it's actually spiritual. And because of that, we can say an event is a miracle if and only if it supersedes or suspends the regular working of the world. So our understanding of a miracle is that, yes, God has created the world to work with natural processes. Uh, This is why science works, because God has created the world orderly, And so there are things that we can predict will occur in a normal way within the world. That's how God created it. But a miracle is when God supersedes or suspends that regular working to alter what would normally occur. So there's actually an intervention of a supernatural power that comes in and changes what would have occurred if nature would have just been allowed to run its course. Right, so that's where we distinguish between a miracle and even just the providence of God that That's an important distinction because a lot of people will refer to things as miracles that probably would better be referred to as just the providential hand of God yeah. at work uh, because it's it's something that God has organized that doesn't necessarily make us say something didn't happen scientifically in the way that it should have in that process. so I read. A long, really, really long <laughs> story from uh, an elder, was a quorum of the 70, and this is on the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints website, uh, where he was talking about these miracles that he's seen, and he says he's just seen so many miracles in his life that, uh, that it blows his mind. And then he goes to tell this story about his daughter, I believe it was, lost her uh, wedding ring. And she wasn't married yet. It was, uh, you know, she was going to be getting married in like a month's time and she lost this ring and they were devastated about it and they prayed about it and they just kept searching. Instead of going and buying another ring, they committed that they were going to find this ring. And then somehow, you know, her hairdresser was aware that she had lost her ring and her hairdresser just had happened to be at a grocery store where a lady picked up the ring uh, and as she was picking it up, the hairdresser happened to be there and see it and said, I think I know whose ring that might be. And so took a picture and sent it to her and said, I, I think I found this ring and the ring happened to be her ring. And so, you know, we would describe those sorts of workings as providential, but not as miraculous, um, because there's nothing that happened within that story that, that you would be baffled to try to give a scientific explanation to it, right? Um, it's just God's providence at work. And uh, we would say that was a good thing, right? Like, good that that happened to that person. That's, in our view, God's common grace towards them that uh, something like that would occur. And so, things that we would refer to, you know, perhaps in a worldly sense as a coincidence, or some people in other religions will use the word karma. Uh, you know, things of, of that nature, we would put that in the category of providence, not in the category of miraculous. Mm-hmm. Uh, miraculous is like the, 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 the there's a superseding and suspension of the regular working of the world in order for this to occur. Um, and so, you know, you got, you got someone who has cancer one day and a group, praise for them. And the next day they go to the checkup and the cancer's gone. That's a miracle. When doctors are like, I don't even know how to explain that this could happen. Right. Um, so it's just important to make, I think those distinctions when for sure about these things. And riffing off of that. Um, and you'll see this pretty clearly, um,
1: in Mormon, even post Mormon culture, LDS culture. um, but this is a broader point, is that if you don't have a good understanding of this transcendent God as he's revealed himself, typically you're flipping back and forth. Some people will go back and forth, but people will typically choose, we say, new age or new atheist, right? This is another way of getting at um, the tendency toward seeing God in nothing or seeing God in everything. Mm-hmm. And not, not that God doesn't have a hand in everything, but you know um, it's almost like deism. It's all just, you know, the clockmaker God and everything's just rolling, running according to processes. It sounds pretty similar to what's yeah. so Right. Yeah. Um, but then there's something called occasionalism that treats everything like a miracle. Like yep. it's more pantheistic. That is also in, in Mormonism in the sense that there's intelligences, ever and everything. And, um, so it's a false choice between this kind of, you know, um, occasionalism, everything is miraculous, or deism, nothing is. Yeah. We actually, in a, in one sense, uh, take a middle
0: road. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, I, I should be clear, right, that even in my explanation, I'm not saying that in a miracle, God is superseding his own providence. That's not what I'm intending to imply, but that could be a confusion that's brought on from the way that I explained that. But... Uh, no, it, it, a miracle would be within the providential plan of God. My point is to make a distinction between things that would seem to be coincidences just because mm-hmm. it's surprising the way that events turn out in our life uh, and those things that are, that are a legitimate supernatural hand reaching into the normal working of the scientific natural order Um, in order to alter what could have or would have occurred if that would have naturally continued in its way. Right, totally. So just to throw an example
1: out there with all this stuff, um, I've heard this personally, right? People say uh, uh, childbirth is a miracle. But we would say, no. Yeah. There's nothing more natural than childbirth, Mm -hmm. right? That's God's providence. Yep. So where we would affirm someone seeing God, and by that we mean the triune God, uh, is that God's hand is in that in the terms of creating at the beginning and upholding creation every moment. Yep. But we would not say that's a miracle. Mm-hmm. And in, if, if someone says that, notice how, once again, it's turning a word that has kind of a more meaning in the Christian background of our civilization mm-hmm and making it more aesthetic to I don't understand how this works or I find this beautiful. That's not what we mean by miracle. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and similarly, when we mean omniscience, right, going back to the knowledge point, <laughs> it's not oh knowledge beyond what I understand currently or anything like that. No, yeah. it has a meaning, uh, you know, in, if you get any book on the attributes of God from a believer, I should say, you'll see that difference between how, they talk about God's omniscience and how Hollander would so would talk about God's omniscience. Yeah.
0: So let's talk a little bit about, you know, maybe bring it down out of the, the upper uh, level of ideas and into, you know, more of a street level. Um, the curriculum, the elders cur- curriculum, I think tends to have, sort of this bent towards what what miracles would you like to see occur in your life, or how, did, how does Jesus' example in um, seeing that these mi- miracles were performed by him, you know, how does that maybe make you want to help other people? And uh, it's, it doesn't say explicitly by trying to perform miracles for them, but I think that that's true in the way that Um, The LDS faith is actually lived out as there is, it seems to me, this expectation of these miracles happening all the time and being able to be a participant in that. Um, Let's talk about the deeper meaning of these passages of Jesus' miracles in particular because I I think that the curriculum just totally misses the point of why Jesus is performing these miracles within the context of these passages. And so I want to read just first from Bavink a little bit on the purpose of these miracles of Jesus. And then I know you've, you've got some good stuff as well, but uh, Bavink writes this day of Yahweh, which is this, this coming day, this coming, uh, this coming eon when, you know, all things are, are going to be made right in contrast to the present one, according to the scripture has dawned in the new Testament. So when we look at Jesus coming and we look at his messianic ministry, we often will refer to what we call the, the inauguration of the kingdom. You know, he's, he's coming, and this, this future day is dawning in him, in his messianic work here on earth, and it one day will be brought to completion when he returns. The coming of Christ is the turning point of the ages, talking about the first coming of Christ. Grouped around this person is a new cycle of miracles. He is himself the absolute miracle, descended from above, and yet the true and complete human. In him, a principle, the creation, has been restored, again, raised from its fall to its pristine glory. His miracles are the signs of the presence of God, proof of the messianic era, a part of his messianic labor. In Christ, there appears a divine power that is stronger than all the corrupting and destructive power of sin. This latter power he attacks not only peripherally by healing diseases and performing all kinds of miracles, but centrally by penetrating the core, breaking and overcoming them. His incarnation and satisfaction, his resurrection and ascension are God's great deeds of redemption. They are in principle the restoration of the kingdom of glory. These facts of salvation are not only means of revelation, but are the revelation of God himself. Miracle here becomes history and history itself becomes a miracle, and Bobbing goes on from there. But if I could boil it down, basically, the whole point of these miracle stories being told, and uh, you know, you see this even very clearly in Matthew. You've got Jesus breaking in with the proclamation of the gospel in Matthew four, and then you have the teachings of this kingdom in Matthew five to seven, and then you've got the miracle and the power of this of this king coming and enacting. A ministry that is literally reversing the effects that sin has wrought on this world. You know, so from our perspective, we believe the destruction of sin has been more extensive than we can even begin to fathom or imagine. The destruction of sin brought into this world is not only what has brought moral corruption, it is what has caused the whole creation to yearn and groan. For the coming of Christ, because all of creation, all all uh, of what we would refer to as not just moral evil but natural evil, um, all of the earthquake, you know, the earthquakes that we see happening in uh, Turkey and Syria right now, this is a result of the destruction of sin. The things that uh, you know we see happening in maybe our own family members' bodies with cancer diagnoses and things of this nature. This is because of the destruction of sin. And so sin brings destruction, and Jesus in his messianic ministry comes as the savior of the world who will deliver people from all of the presence and power of sin. And so there is both in his ministry, him going about in the proclamation of this, but also in the doing of it, both through the forgiveness of sins, and through the temporary healing of these people's bodies who are you know, wrecked by sin. And we say temporary because it's not final and complete yet, right? This is just a taste of what is to come. And uh, one story that is clear in that is the story of the paralytic. And, uh, of course, in that story, you've got a crippled man uh, who's been crippled his whole life, and Jesus give, gives him the ability to walk. That man still died right that wasn't his resurrection moment but it's a foretaste of what's to come so there's an anticipation of what he is doing uh, as he fulfills his messianic ministry and what he will bring to completion on the last day when he comes back for his people and he reverses every damage that sin has ever brought into this world this is this is a this is a moment you should be reading these passages and not just say man I wish that that could happen to me now it ought to lead you to hope in what's to come When Christ returns, and he does this on a wide scale for all of his people. Now, let's also be clear here. What we're not saying is that people are always directly suffering as a result of punishment for their personal sins. Um, Now, (laughs) I also want to be careful not to back away from the fact that people could be suffering as a result of the judgment of God for their sins, but what I'm referring to more so is the general brokenness of the world. Original sin. Yeah, the original sin that causes humanity to suffer on a wide scale, um, because we are all in sin. The world is is you know in those pains of childbirth until the uh, the Savior comes to rescue people finally and completely from their sins. Um, so you do, you do see, you know, there's a distinction that should be made between the way that God punishes uh, those who are his enemies uh, and also the way that he disciplines those who are his children. So there's some very important distinctions that could be made there. Um, God, if you, if you are trusting Christ and you are suffering, I mean, bad things do happen to good people. This is a reality of living in a broken world. And God in His providence uses our sufferings to sanctify us and strengthen us, and in, in ways that we otherwise would not be strengthened if that suffering did not, in His providential goodness, be allowed to be brought into our lives. Um, but I also want to, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to go too far in the other direction too, and say that, you know, if you if you are an enemy of God and you are suffering, that that's not the result of your sin against God, but it certainly is the result of just the broader brokenness that humanity has to deal with as a result of sin. And all of that, all of that is what Jesus will one day fully and completely reverse for his people that he has redeemed fully and completely um, ultimately by his blood. Mm Mm-hmm. So you've got you've got some other things I think would be good just to give some more particular examples on the miracles of Jesus, because that's a, more of a broad overview there. Yeah, th- so they, of course, as we
1: have said, they're, they're covering a, s- a whole series of miracles in the Gospels. One that they spent quite a bit of time on, in fact, a whole day on in the seminary manual, was on the calming of the storm. And one thing you notice in it is it jumps right to Jesus's ability to calm our life storms. Um, But it does have this gem of a question here that I, I like that it's there. It says, what did you learn about the nature and character of Jesus Christ? That's, that's a great question. And then it says, what truths can we learn from this account about the Savior's ability to calm our life storms? I think and and this is a theme that we've brought up quite a bit, if you jump too quickly to our life application, we don't do full justice to the events themselves and the theology being presented there before going to life application. So there's a a book I'll I'll recommend by Vern Poitras. Um, He's a Westminster professor, New Testament, I believe. And he has a book called The Miracles of Jesus, How the Savior's Mighty Acts Serve as Signs of Redemption. And he, he deals with um, a scholar previous to him, Edmund Clowney, I believe is his name. And he he set up a whole system for how to approach miracle events, um, both in terms of the event itself and in the scope of the entire biblical history and narrative. And I think this calming of the storm is a great example of this, where... and. It'll be in the book for those who want to look. There will be a symbolic reference, a typological reference, and then you'll see the progression of the history of Revelation. And then in the last part of the chart, it has application. So if we were to just go through the calming of the storm really quick, this is um, uh, pretty interesting. They go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and... um, other boats were with him. Verse thirty-seven in Mark four, and a great windstorm arose. By the way, the paintings, which we we've not, we haven't done anything on paintings of Jesus, mm-hmm. but, but uh, by that by themselves. But anyways, they typically you know have rain and stuff like this. Yeah. But actually, it's windstorm, um, and the waves were breaking into the boat. And interestingly enough, we found one of these boats from the time of Jesus, so we know we have a pretty good idea of uh, the type of boat this was. He was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And I love that, Rabbi. Mm. Uh, And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. But that's not where it ends. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So there's, if you just end on the comfortable point of he can calm the storm in your life, it's not that that's entirely untrue, but look at the event. They start to realize there's someone even more fearsome Mm -hmm. than the storm. And that is Jesus Christ, and of course, it's God that controls the sea. It's God that controls the waves in the Old Testament. So when Poitras breaks this down, I'm going pretty quickly here. It's pretty, pretty fascinating. He goes through the the Matthew account of the same event, but once again, he shows some of the Old Testament precedent. Psalm 107: Only God can control the winds and the sea. Um. And, and by the way, it, it, kind of a folk LDS belief that I don't really know where it comes from. I don't know if you've heard uh, the, the idea that LDS missionaries can't um, go swim in the ocean. Have you heard no, that? Never heard it. Because they think that Satan has control of the sea or something. Mm. Anyway, I haven't been able to track down that, but it, yeah. I, I put it in the category of like folk LDS beliefs. It's probably not official teaching. Kind of like, a, I don't know if you've heard this, that Bigfoot is Cain. No, nope, I haven't heard that either. <laughs> I heard that as a kid. So I don't know if there's anything to it. Uh. But um, anyway, if there is anything to it, uh, no, the Bible teaches otherwise. Um, and it goes through the significance of power. Uh, you already mentioned this, so I won't spend too much time here, but the, the, the Jesus' miracles, they're not just exhibitions of his power uh, as if he needs to prove anything, Um It's an exhibition of his power to save people. He's making, that's why they're called signs uh, sometimes, right? In this event, something theological is being taught as well. And in fact, in Mark, teaching and and miracles go hand in hand. And um, we see this Jonah symbolism. We see in Psalm 69 this idea of waters and drowning being the threat of death. The psalmist saying, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. And this is Poitras. Thus, when Jesus rescued the disciples from the storm, the rescue pointed beyond the waters to the larger issue of death. You see that? So you can see how this historical event is taking on a meaning beyond itself. Uh, or I should say, maybe meaning within itself. I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't, I, I don't want to go too far either way on that point. Now, on Clowney's triangle for this, in terms of application... You see in the bottom left corner, if you can imagine this, Jesus calms the storm. This historical event happened. Mm -hmm. And then you see the symbolic reference with an arrow pointing up to Jesus delivers from the waters of death. And then you see an arrow going from left to right, history of revelation to, to the reference that the cross and the resurrection accomplished deliverance from death. And then if you go back to the symbolic, uh, to to the event, Jesus calms the storm, you see that that simultaneously has a typological reference toward the same thing. Mm -hmm. Then at the end, you have the application, which is believers are delivered from death through Jesus' power. Yeah. So it's it's interesting, um, this event, especially in the context of Mark, and maybe we'll do some bonus episodes on Mark, but this... um, this fear is getting a more clear sense of who this man is. Mm -hmm. And that's on one hand, the appropriate response. And that's something that you'll totally miss. If you just jump to, he's going to calm my life. And um, so there's an example of how there's so much packed into these stories available to us. If um, we are patient with the text and we treat the text like the window that it is rather than a mirror.
0: Yeah, I think I mean another just beautiful example that I could run through that same idea is at the beginning of Matthew eight and Jesus uh, healing the leper, and the the deeper theological meaning being that we are all unclean because a leper would have been ceremonially unclean according to the Mosaic law, and he should have been uh, cast outside of the city and uh, not been allowed back in until he had healed up, and yet he comes up running up to Jesus, and Jesus you know, should have just sh- shoot him away and said, I, I can't touch you because if I touch you, I become unclean. But instead you see Jesus touching this unclean leper, and instead of Jesus becoming unclean by the leper's uncleanliness, uh, the-, the power of Jesus is able to make him clean. And so, in the same way that you know, theologically, we are all sinners uh, before God, unclean before Him. We need Jesus in order to be made clean, and that's what He came to do ultimately through His life, death, and resurrection. Yeah, um, to cleanse the people for Himself. So, yes, you just see like there's a there's a there's always a, a spiritual significance to what Jesus is doing. It's all tied to his Messianic ministry, mm-hmm. and the authors know this. This isn't stuff that we're just reading into it. There's, this, is a, this is a whole book, like Matthew's a whole book, that is making an argument of who Jesus is that's leading to the pinnacle moment. Every gospel is leading to the pinnacle moment of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection afterwards. That's what it's all leading to. And so as he's telling the story of Jesus, it's all with that in mind. It's all with, with the the purpose in mind of his ministry, which is saving a people through his life, death, and resurrection.
1: Yes, and on the touching of the leper as yeah. well, notice that's his identification with that wound. That's that identification with that sin by which we are healed. Yeah. I mean, so you can see the incarnation, you can see the cross, you can see it. So, yeah, there's a lot of depth here. Yeah, If we will get out of our own way and recognize our place, how great God is rather than focusing on how we want to feel every day yeah. or whatever.
0: And all of this is ultimately meant to lead us to place our, our faith in Jesus. Absolutely. Um, you know, not not to try to muster up some power within ourselves that we call faith but to have a knowledge of who Christ is according to what we're reading in the scriptures to have a conviction that you know he has the power to actually save us and then to trust him yes to cast ourselves upon him mm-hmm. and say he's the one who's going to have to save me from my sins yep he's the one's going to have to rescue from me from all of the power and the presence of sins all the effects of sin he's the only hope i have of being rescued Absolutely. So, for the cripple, he's the only hope of one day being able to walk in the new kingdom, and he's the only hope of you being able to be in that kingdom because you've been forgiven of your sins before a holy God. So he, you need him entirely for everything, uh, not just partially to show you, you know, the right direction yeah, to right. head on your own.
1: And and the object of faith is also what's missing, just as the object of prayer was missing in the last episode. You get this, once again, that faith being connected to power, connected to knowledge, and then, yeah, I think the object of faith in so much of this, especially in the quotes we went through, is ourselves. Yeah. That's the object of the faith. So it's almost a f- faith becomes a, a, a virtue, an abstract principle by which we access God's power to do what we will ultimately. I mean, they might say according to God's will while we're, On training wheels, but eventually it's to do our will. Um, I mean, that's very different than um, our view, which is, you know, when we look at the mustard seed analogy, right? Notice no matter how small the faith is, it's the object of faith that's great. We're saved by Christ through faith. We don't have faith in faith. And I love how the Reformed, uh, the classical Reformed distinctions of faith, for those that don't know, right? Typically, it's distinguished in three ways. There's notitia, which is what we know about Christ. There's a census, which is the conviction that the things we know are true. And then there's the fiducia, that's the trust and reliance. When we say saving faith, as was even uh, in the confession that we read earlier, all three are there. When we say faith theologically, we mean what we know about Christ, our conviction that they're true, and then our trust and reliance. So it's not just a subjective feeling. It's not just it's not something that we can even stop through our unbelief, as Nelson said. It's it's just wholly trusting and relying on the one who can save, whose works do save.
0: Yeah. So there there's a call, as there always is, to look at who Jesus is in the gospels and trust him to be your savior. I mean, entirely to save you fully, completely um, and trust him alone. If you ever have any uh, questions for us or feedback on anything that you're hearing here, we would love to hear from you. Um, Mm -hmm. You can message us through Instagram or Facebook, or you can uh, send us an email at, at com, And we would love to hear from you and receive your feedback. Uh, it just helps us sharpen, you know, the direction that we take things uh, it, with this show. You know, it, it's, it's still a very young show, so we'll see how it evolves in time, but uh, that will be sharpened by your feedback. Any last words, Skyler? No, thank you for listening and I just second what you just said. Awesome. Next week, we'll be in Matthew 9 to 10, Mark 5, Luke 9. we got another bunch of chapters from a bunch of different books coming your way. Yay. We'll see you then.